an intriguing fact that the Gospel of Matthew is the 40th book in the Bible is important. You know that the number 40 in the Bible, it's invariably connected with the period of testing. The 40th book symbolizes for me uh, the testing of the people of Israel. Would they recognize their own king? And they didn't. They even went to Pilate and they said, they told him to write something else. He said, you know, I am the king of the Jews, but don't write, this is the king of the Jews. Pilate, though, you know, with only the only burst of courage that he ever showed, he said, what I have written, I have written. So the words above the cross said, this is the king of the Jews. And so that scripture is up on your screen. So someone kept this genealogy and it would have also been registered by the government for purposes of taxation. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because his family tree would be in some tax office. Remember, they made everybody come back to be registered. God made sure his birth was documented. He had to be born in Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David. Matthew, remember, he was a tax collector. And I just have a feeling that at some point he might have gone to the tax office and pulled open some filing cabinet just to say, you know, let's see the records of Jesus. You know, this genealogy is the last genealogy in the Bible, except Luke chapter three, which is simply another version of the genealogy of Jesus. And so why do you think that the genealogies just stopped right here? They stopped because they reached the end. When Jesus, who is called the Christ, was born, the Bible didn't continue to record any more family lineage because it doesn't matter now who your ancestors were or what family tree you have. What matters now is whether you're in Christ Jesus. The Word became flesh. Those who are God's children are born of God, born from above, born of the Spirit. You only have one family tree when you're born of the Spirit. He gave the right, the authority, the privilege to become children of God. That is to those who believe in and I'm reading from the Amplified Version of the same scripture that's on your screen. To those who believe in, adhere to, trust in, and rely on his name, who were born not of blood, which is natural conception, nor of the will of the flesh, physical impulse, nor of the will of man, that of a natural father, but of God. That is a divine and supernatural birth. They are born of God, spiritually transformed, renewed, and sanctified. And do you remember when God made a promise to Abraham and a covenant with him? And he said, Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you this land. Everything is for you and your seed. Galatians 3.16 says this, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture doesn't say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. He's the seed. The word seed there is masculine and singular. In other words, to you, Abraham, and one male descendant of yours. The promise came to Jesus. The promise of Abraham was inherited. And once it has been inherited, that's it. The promise has already been received. So it doesn't matter where my name or your name is written on earth or what our family tree is, but it's vital that our name is written in God's book of life. And here's an exciting thought. Matthew chapter one is my family tree, and it's your family tree if you're in Christ.
Why? Because we're mentioned there at the end of verse 16. It says, And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Christ. So the genealogy leads all the way back to Christ, and I and you are in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. If anyone is in Christ, that is the New Testament definition of a Christian. You may go to church, but that doesn't make you a Christian. We can put on Christian behavior. We can imitate other Christians, sing hymns, read the Bible, but that doesn't do it. What makes us a Christian is to be in Christ, and that puts you into Matthew 1. You inherit the promise by being in Christ, and then Abraham is your father. We read in Matthew that God the Father chose the perfect name for Jesus, the name that would fit everything he would do. Legally, in Hebrew life, only the father could name the child. But God the Father didn't say, Joseph, name the child. Through an angel, he said, you shall call him Jesus. In Hebrew, that name is Yeshua, and it means God saves. But Jesus didn't come primarily to save us from loneliness, frustration, boredom, discomfort, ignorance, fears of anxiety, and all of this. Every one of those things are a byproduct. He came to save us from our sins. The tragedy is that we really want to be saved from everything else but our sin. And the world is looking for anyone who will counsel them about any problem, but the root problem is sin. Jesus came to deal with one thing primarily, and all the others are related. We want to be saved from the penalty of sin, but do we really want to be saved from our sins? He shall save his people from their sins. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This doesn't mean primarily that he'll save you from hell. It means primarily that he wants to save us from our besetting sins, from the sins that rule over us. Remember in the beginning it said, But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. This was God's instruction to Cain before he killed his brother Abel. And it's been this way from the beginning and it's still this way now. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin for when we died with Christ we were set free from the power of sin. Do not let sin control the way you live and do not give in to sinful desires. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God. For you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. The world says that we can't change human nature. You can't break those things. You can't be free of the chains of your character or habits. But Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins. He breaks the power of sin's dominion over us and sets the prisoner free. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And what was the result? 
You are now ashamed of the things you used to do, things that end in eternal doom. But now you are free from the power of sin and have become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It is no use to go around saying, He saved me from hell, I'm safe for heaven, and it's all done. If I haven't been saved from a single sin, as a well-known evangelist put it while he was making kind of an appeal, he said, don't come out to the front unless you're willing to leave your sins behind in the seat that you're leaving. That's the gospel. That name, Jesus, becomes precious not only to those who just say, I've been saved from hell and the penalty of sin, but to those who say, he has set me free from sin. I am free. It doesn't have dominion over me. It can't, doesn't have to control me. That's the freedom that he came to bring. And notice these words, for he will save his people, his people, not the world. So how do we become one of his people? The same way Joseph and Mary became his people. Mary became one of his people when she said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel left her. Joseph became one of his people when he awoke from the dream and did as he had been commanded. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. The people who will be saved from their sins are those who do what God tells them and who become part of the story themselves and who are willing to be used by God. I feel confident that Jesus didn't say anything he didn't mean. And he said, so why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? We are called to apply the word to our lives, to live it out and let it transform us as we're becoming more like Christ when we do what it says. The Bible says don't become just a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. It even says don't deceive yourselves. And it really just, what, what it's saying to us is don't deceive yourselves into thinking that you're in the right standing with the Lord when you're just listening, but you're not doing. Because re the reality is our doing, this is not a gospel of works that we are trying to earn anything because our doing merely proves that we're actually saved. It is the fruit that should be produce, produced in our life. Just as John the Baptist said, when he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, prove by the way that you live that you're actually saved. Because if you really are, it's out of the abundance of your heart that there will be a transformation. There will be fruit that is in accordance with the things of the Spirit. And so I think it's interesting to also notice the place where Jesus's ministry started, which was Galilee. It was where he lived. And it's comparatively easy to go and preach somewhere else. But in front of people who know you, that's not always the case. And this was a place where he had been a carpenter and everybody knew that he was the man down the street who could fix a table. In John 4:44, it says he himself had said that a prophet is not honored in his own hometown. Every group of believers calling themselves a church today began on the morning Jesus walked along that shore in Galilee and said to four fishermen, come, follow me. It's remarkable that the church started that way and not with a committee or some large assembly.
just four fishermen and Jesus walking along the seashore. And it makes me think that the church might be more effective today if it had managed to retain that kind of simplicity. He didn't lay down any terms. He didn't say, you know, are there wages that you'll require? You know, how many hours will you work for me? He said, come and follow me. It was unconditional. It was going to be a kind of slavery, but yet perfect freedom. So Jesus made the demand with no conditions, no terms, and they did follow him, leaving immediately. It meant for some of them leaving a good job, and in some cases, leaving their relatives. Simon had to leave his wife. Well, presumably he had to leave his wife. Zebedee, you know, the uh, father was left by James and John. Ultimately, it meant leaving their lives because only one of those original disciples died of an old age in his bed. The others were martyred, but they all followed him immediately. When Jesus calls you to follow him, we can't make conditions or terms. You can't say, well, Lord, I'll follow you if dot, 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 or I'll follow you, but dot, dot, dot. There are cases in the gospel of people who tried to do that. But there can be no buts. We're simply supposed to follow him. But God doesn't expect us to be good for nothing without any incentive. Even Jesus himself, it was said, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in his grace and mercy, He's given us some profound teaching about rewards. In life, we have to choose who we expect to be rewarded by. You can choose between people or God, but you can't choose both. You either live for the rewards that people will give you or for the rewards that God will give you. Whatever you choose is going to determine your behavior. People praise those who seek human rewards. That's, what, that's the reward you get when you're seeking it from people when that's obviously what they're after. You know, they may get rewarded, but they're rewarded here. And the Bible says that if you're rewarded here, you're not rewarded there in heaven. You've already gotten your reward. Matthew 6, 1 through 6 says, Watch out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. When you give to someone in need, don't do it as the hypocrites do blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they'll ever get. But when you give to someone in need, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Give your gifts in private, and your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everybody can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward they'll ever get. But when you pray, go away by yourself, shut the door behind you, and pray to your Father in private. Then your Father, who sees everything, will reward you. We need to look for our rewards from God. That doesn't mean that you'll get no recognition from men. Sometimes the reward and recognition may come at a human level, but most of the time it won't. It doesn't matter whether it does or doesn't. If you're looking for your reward from God, you'll rejoice that nobody knows about what you've done. You'll rejoice that the Father's eyes are upon you. He is the God who rewards us. 
His rewards go way beyond anything that we deserve. But here's the next question. Why does God need to offer me rewards? Why do I need an incentive? There are actually at least four reasons that are given in the scriptures why we need an incentive. First, I need an incentive to look for God in the first place. The Bible promises a reward to those who do. Whoever would come to God, says the author of Hebrews, must first believe that he exists. That's a basic first step if you're going to find God. Hebrews 11.6 says, Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. The second is that you must believe that he rewards those who seek him. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. The second reason I need an incentive is to be sanctified by God. It's the easiest thing once you become a Christian to settle down and be satisfied where you are instead of pressing on. I need an incentive. I'm in a race. There's a prize that's offered to me to forget the things that are behind and press on towards the goal. For the prize is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus to press on and seek that holiness without which no one can see the Lord. Philippians 3, 12 through 21 says, I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. If you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you, but we must hold on to the progress we have already made. Dear brothers and sisters, pattern your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things and they think only about this life here on earth. But we are citizens of heaven where the Lord Jesus Christ lives. And we are eagerly awaiting for him to return as our savior. He will take our weak mortal bodies and change them into glorious bodies like his own, using the same power with which he will bring everything under his control. Work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Hebrews 12, 14. What does this verse mean? I just want to pause and ask that question. Are there any thoughts on what this verse means? To work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. Does anyone have anything you want to share? I believe it means having a heart of repentance and um, wanting to to not only read God's Word, but do the Word of God and examine ourselves daily, hourly sometimes. I don't know. That's what I think. I agree. I, I think that's a great answer. For me personally, I don't think that it means that I have to be perfect 
because my holiness comes from putting on the righteousness of Christ. I believe what it comes from is being in a place of abiding with him and in him, uh, that he is in my thoughts, that his word is in my heart, that I'm meditating on the scriptures because I'm in his word, which is part of the abiding walk with him. And, and my ability to live a holy life has to do with my ability to submit to the Holy Spirit when he's showing me things I need to correct in my life on a daily basis. And I'm agreeing with the Holy Spirit. And so if I sin, I, I quickly, it's a short list. I'm keeping a short list of wrongs where I immediately just, I'm, Lord, forgive me, forgive me. You know, or at least at the end of end of a day or beginning of the next day, Lord, forgive me. I pray that you'd cleanse me from all unrighteousness. You know, that's part of our working at living a holy life. You know, that we are understanding this process of sanctification. Are there any other thoughts? I think when, that when you're working at living a holy life, that means you truly have a relationship with Christ and you have the perspective of Christ. Mm-hmm. You understand, you know, his way of thinking. And I think that by default, once you're living, you know, with the perspective of Christ, you you tend to lend grace, which means living in peace with everyone. Amen. Amen. You're right, because you're lending that grace. Why, Shay? Because you've been given so much mercy yourself, right? Absolutely. And I do think that the more that we let this word of God wash over us, that's what's renewing our mind. And then we begin to think like he thinks. We begin to love what he loves. We take on the characteristics of Christ because that's the goal, isn't it? Isn't that what the scriptures say? That we're supposed to put on the mind of Christ, that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the washing of the word. But there is supposed to be a transformation that's taking place. Anyone else? Yes, for me, I always uh, resort back to Galatians 2.20. Essentially, living a holy life is allowing the Lord Jesus to live in and through you and just allowing his life to be lived through you. I think if you do that, it's in alignment with submission because you cannot allow the Lord to live in you if you don't submit to him and allow his life. When Galatians uh, 2.20 says, I was crucified with Christ, so it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives through me. So holiness would allow the Lord to live through you. And because he lived the perfect life and a holy life, you would then be perfect and holy. Amen. Amen. To me, what it means is pretty much what I had to tell someone a couple of weeks ago is that I don't waste my time every day reading the Bible and not living my life according to what um, I'm reading every day. Uh, To me, that way you are living in peace and you're living a holy life because you're a doer Mm -hmm. of the word as well. That's what it means to me. Amen. And you know, right here we see in this scripture, there is something for us to do. What it shows us is there's a cooperation that we're supposed to have with the Holy Spirit, right? Does everyone see that? When it says, and work, that's your part, and work at living a holy life. That means cooperate with the Holy Spirit. I believe it's saying we have to surrender every day. Every day we have to surrender ourselves to God and walk in his statues and 
do have to examine ourselves daily, um, maybe hourly, and just repent of those things when uh, it is revealed to us that, um, okay, you, you, you shouldn't have said that or you shouldn't have acted that way. Um, and then we have to take that corrective action and ask God for forgiveness. Amen. You know, the thing that's so awesome about this too, that I'm finding as I'm just growing in my walk with the Lord is that it puts us in a position for the Lord to receive blessing from him. It puts us in a position to be protected. It puts us in a position when we have this short list with him that we're dealing with daily, that the enemy can't breach the wall. Do you know what I mean? Because we are staying covered. Like this is such, I think this is such a awesome practice to get into, not out of um, duty, even though it might start dutifully, just acknowledging that it's in the word and that I've got to get into this practice. It might start like that, but then it's like the reward that comes from when actually seeking him. You know, he says he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So as we continue in this and as we continue pursuing righteousness and holiness, we experience more of his presence. You know, we begin to take on attributes of him that we could not do on our own. The Holy Spirit begins to enable us in ways that we are receiving because we're maturing, as because we're putting on holiness, right? We're, we're not just reading it, we're doing it because it becomes a lifestyle. And I just, I feel like there's just no better place to be than to be in, in a place where the Lord is ruling and reigning and the walls cannot be breached. You know, what a safe position to be basically under the shadow of the Most High. Psalm 91, we can trust and know. It says, he who abides in the shadow of the Most High. That's where those promises become true for us. Psalm 91 is not actually a blanket promise for any believer. It's not because there's conditions in that Psalm that says it's for he who abides, you know, under the shelter and the shadow of the Most High. So not everybody who professes is abiding, right? But when we know that we're, we are abiding in the word, working at living a holy life, you know, loving the word, you know, and that's another important aspect. We had a Bible study in my home yesterday and we were speaking a little bit on that, on some scripture that talks about um, a time in the end times when the Lord says he'll send a strong delusion and he'll cause certain people to believe the lie, to believe a lie. And, and it's sort of shocking to read that in the word because, I mean, that seems, I mean, it just doesn't seem right on some aspect. But we begin to understand what's actually happening when we look back in the Exodus, when we look back at what happened with plagues and, mm. and with Pharaoh. You know, it said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart multiple times, five times. And then after that, it says God hardened his, hardened his heart. And so we see that it's the same thing that the Lord is saying in this scripture in the New Testament when he says, those who refused to love the truth, that because they refuse to love the truth, he will send a strong delusion and cause them to believe the lie. And so it's not just a matter of people that he's just going to harden their hearts for no reason and cause them to believe a lie. It's because they've already set their hearts against loving his word. I just think that's such a word of caution for us and even a word of um, development in our work at living a holy life 
to make sure that we actually love his word. Because I think it's important that we're honest with ourselves. If we don't feel like we actually love his word, maybe we just are doing it. Maybe we are trying to abide, but maybe we don't love it. But I mean, I believe it's wholeheartedly one of those things that God can create in us a love. You know, it's one of those things that we need to ask the Holy Spirit. Give me a love for your word, Lord. Give me a passion. Help put, give me a heart that's hungry. Let it be like fire shut up in my bones. You know, let me desire to spend this time with you. And I believe that the Lord will answer those prayers because it is absolutely according to his heart and according to his will that we be transformed by his word. Hallelujah. Any more thoughts before I move on from working at living a holy life? You know, Sister Krista, I know as you speak, it, it really it really speaks to me a lot. And and in my life, I know that the my biggest struggle, uh, which I think is that if there was that one magical bullet that would solve all the problems, right, would be that submission submission issue. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that God can do all things and many more things with the one who submits than the one who resists his will. So I, I, I find that for Christ to live in me, for me to be able to live, I know we, we speak of this submission and, and, and sometimes it, it becomes repetitive. It, it seems as though it loses the meaning of its power. But every time I sit to meditate, I realize the power of submission. Jesus showed us that template, how he submitted to the will of the Father. And because of his submission, the whole world is able to be saved by the work that he completed on the cross. And so when I when I assess the power of submission, I realize that that's the one ingredient that God is asking from everyone in order to live a holy life. In some ways, we can view submission as a sign of weakness, but we see that the Lord exalts the humble and he'll never turn away a broken and a contrite heart. And if God is for you, who can be against you? It's like it's our place and our position of strength to be in a place of submission to our Lord. He is our creator and our master. And the reality is when we take the time to truly bow ourselves before his word, before him, just even in our worship, what he does as a result of that for us is just so much more than we could do in our own efforts. You know, it's when we really come to that place that we realize in our hearts, you know, he knows when our, and it's one thing to bow or to submit externally, but what he's looking for is for us to be genuine, for it to come from our heart, you know, that it's genuinely in a, in a place that's laid down before him. Lord, you let your name be exalted, not mine. Let your glory be received, no, not for me. Do you know what I mean? That it's just about him. As we go through this process of maturity in him, he's bringing us to this place of really understanding how to unlock deeper intimacy with our King. And I think submission is quite a key. So thank you for sharing that. So I wanted to point out also that um, the Beatitudes are just one statement of prize after prize that's waiting for those who are poor in spirit for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those who are pure in heart, and for those who are reviled. Every single beatitude is simply a statement of reward waiting for holiness. Great is your reward in heaven when we pursue righteousness. They even knew this in the days of the Old Testament. 
King David said, In keeping of your commands, there is great reward. The commands of the Lord are clear, giving insight for living. They are a warning to your servant, a reward for those who obey them. The third reason that I need the incentive of a reward is to serve the Lord with diligence, to keep at it and to not, you know, want to quit. In the Christian life, there is no retirement. Paul, at the end of his life, he said, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have remained faithful, and now the prize awaits me, the crown of righteousness. So you get this sense that he's reaching the finish line. You know, after I've finished the course and now I'm just waiting for the crown that's laid up for me. In Colossians 3.23, we're told, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. The Lord will give you a reward of what he's kept for his people. Christ is the real master that you're serving. The fourth reason that I need the incentive of a reward is to suffer for the Lord's sake if I'm called to suffer. You can put up with a lot if you can look forward. A mother, for instance, that's going to go through the pain of childbirth is looking forward to the joy of holding the baby in her hands. And then that pain just gets lost in the joy. And Paul used an accounting term and he said, for I reckon, which means to sum it all up, he was saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. An eternal perspective enables people to go for the martyr's crown, for the joy set before them. When the Lord calls you into service for his church, he's not asking you to do him a favor. He's doing you a favor. He's putting you in the race. He's putting a reward in front of you. But there's no discharge in this war. He wants us to get up to the end of our days and to be able to say, I have run the race. I have finished the course. And there is a crown laid up for me. And not only for me, but for all those who love his appearing. Do you remember when the disciples asked whether they should pay taxes? And Jesus said, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. But Jesus goes on to say to God, what is God's? And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. We also have a duty to God for the benefits that we get from him. And he has a right to expect something from you, something from us as well. A Christian has dual citizenship. We're a citizen of earth and we own things, you know, on this earthly place that we belong to. And we're citizens of heaven and we owe certain things to the kingdom of heaven to which we belong. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's means you're using his money. His image is on it. Why shouldn't you give him his money? But what is it that God's image is on? Every man and every woman on earth has been made yes, in the yes. image of God, and he has a right to us. This is why the Bible says, present yourself, your body, as a living sacrifice. And so, dear brothers and sisters, 
I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Render to God what belongs to God. And if we are truly to render ourselves as a living sacrifice to God, then we need to consider the period between the resurrection and the ascension when Jesus gave the Great Commission. And if you're familiar with this Great Commission, tell me if you agree that this is what he said. So guys, if you feel comfy telling someone about me during the regular course of your life, that would be nice of you. If your denomination does baptisms, and if the Trinitarian nature of God fits in with your worldview, then great, include those aspects in your effort. Be careful not to suggest that they follow my commandments too closely though, that would just be weird. You don't wanna be weird. What do y'all think? Is that what he said? Anybody? Yeah. Is that what he said? Not, not exactly. No. No. <laughs> no. And Jesus came and I think he says, stay weird. (laughs) And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always. To the end of the age. And there is the instruction to teach what he has commanded us and an assurance of his continuing presence with us. It can sometimes seem a bit uncomfortable to go out as a witness to make disciples, but a witness is just someone who sticks to the facts. A witness simply tells what they've seen and heard and they pass on what they know to be fact. Unless the Lord works with us confirming the word, nothing will happen. In order to spread the word, you have to be clothed with power from on high. And in order to have power from on high, we have to remain in Christ. Jesus told us how this relationship will work with him. Remain in me and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. It was a command he gave. And it wasn't just given to the pastors. Those, that was to every disciple. Go and make disciples. That doesn't mean you have to go to the ends of the earth. It just means that those who go to the ends of the earth, he's going to be with them too. But if you're going to your workplace, if you're going to your family reunion, if you're going to your neighbor's house, go and make disciples, you know? And so even as we begin this Bible study, one thing I'll I'll say, I want to encourage you to use this as a resource to help, you know, ask the Lord who you can invite, because this is what we're doing here. We're discipling and, and we should be helping the body of Christ grow, you know, and people to come into a deeper understanding, you know, um, of their walk with the Lord. And it comes through the word. You know, a lot of people don't pick their Bibles up. And so sometimes you're the only Bible that someone might actually um, Mm -hmm. hear hear from. And so um, we need to take that charge that the Lord has given us each individually, I believe, much more seriously, not just a scripture that we're passing by, even in a Bible study. That was a command 
from Jesus to you, to me, to each one of us, to go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to do all that I commanded. You know, and so just like that, um, that uh, little funny meme I put up on the screen, you know, sometimes that's what we think, though. We think, well, I mean, it's just, it's uncomfortable. I don't know if they're going to, are they going to still like me if I talk about Jesus? You know, I don't know what they believe. I, they say they're a Christian, but they don't act like one. You know what I mean? It's like how, so we need to develop a boldness about, you know, and remember that we can't shrink back because we've been given a task. You know, it's like the Lord, when he gave out the money bags and he said, you know, the talents, some have been given two, some have been given one, some, some have been given five, but what he's expecting a return. What, uh, you know, where's the interest? What, what did you do for the kingdom? You know? And so not to say that, that, you know, we're not doing things for the kingdom. It's just, the reality is this is important to the Lord. And he has said, we are responsible to go and make disciples, be disciples that make disciples. Any thoughts anyone has on that? I just think that our culture is really encouraging us to sugarcoat. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, that diagram really, I think hits at home. I mean, we, we cannot sugarcoat our religion or our forget religion. It's our relationship because religion, I mean, let's be honest. That's what killed Jesus. That's what yeah. got it crucified. So it's all about the relationship. And I think that we need to be bold about what we believe in because it's the truth and don't try to sugarcoat it or adapt it to what culture needs to hear to feel comfortable because I mean, there's just so much placating that's going on, you know, in today's world. And, you know, the truth is the truth is in the Bible. And I don't think that we need to sugarcoat, you know, what it takes to have God's perspective and, you know, to communicate God's truth. Does that make sense? Absolutely. You know, I think another important aspect of that is that we should already in advance have our hearts prepared to know that everybody's not going to receive it. And some people are not going to like you because of it. And yeah. frankly, the Bible says, count it all joy when you're persecuted, you know, when they make fun of you for my name's sake, you know, when we are, that's actually supposed to be something we should be like, oh, well, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They're talking bad about me and praise the Lord, you know, because honestly, God sees that. And it really is evidence that um, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And truly, when we don't have any, any issues with people over anything, you know, just like Pastor Sylvia likes to say, silence is agreement. You know, when yeah. we're getting along with the world and there's we're not rocking any boats, it actually should be a check yourself kind of moment. You know, if there's, because the Bible says, Jesus said, they are going to hate you. You know, they hated me first. They're going to hate you because, and why did they hate him? Because he spoke the truth, because he didn't make, let people be comfortable in their right. sin. And so they hated him for it. You know, and it's like what you're saying. We are in a religious culture that wants to placate and wants to make everybody comfortable. And we're calling that we're doing it for the sake of love because, well, we don't want to hurt anyone's feelings and we want everyone to feel heard and it's not loving. You know, we don't want to have an argument or be contentious. And so, but all of that is like candy coated lies, trying to keep an umbrella 
over truth because it is actually not loving to allow people to live in their sin and not realize that they're living in their sin. Like it is more loving to just with love, tell them the truth that they may not want to hear, but it's more loving, you know, because at oh, least I know. Just, way, let me just pretend that you're, you're about to walk into a burning house. And I'm like, Krista, do you really want to go that way? I mean, wouldn't you rather go this way? I mean, but really I should be saying you're about to die. <laughs> Mm -hmm. you're walking into a burning house i mean it's it's really it's really that i mean i don't think we need to sugarcoat things especially in our culture today because we're on a fast track we're on a fast track to you know deception and disillusion and lies i mean it's moving faster than i think i've ever seen it move mm -hmm. i mean I, i've been in technology that was my past corporate life and I'm seeing it on a fast track and technology is really, I think behind, you know, the, that's, that's how we're being deceived. Mm -hmm. I don't know that a lot of people see that, but. Well, know. it's kind of like a frog boiling and that's the culture that we're in. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you kill the frog? I mean, you boil it because he doesn't even realize that it's getting hotter, no idea. hotter and hotter. And so he doesn't jump out. Yeah, you know, no he, just, idea. he gets boiled. And really that is, it's desensitization. Things are happening little by little by little. Yep. And we can look back through the history of how things have been introduced into our society and it's all gradual. But over time, because people have not, they have come, the church has compromised or not spoken up. Things have been allowed and, and little by little. And it was, and it's a lot of things like you're saying, but it is, it is the time for, um, for us to be bold and courageous and stand lovingly on the word of the Lord, regardless of what the cost, because it is going to cost us something to follow Jesus. It's going to cost us friends. Sometimes it's going to cost us reputation. It's going to cost, yeah. um, you know, I just think that we need to be more alert now than ever, because I think that we, it has been gradual up until this point, but now because of the technology uh, advancements, I mean, we're fast tracking now. I mean, we need to act now. You don't need to slow roll. You don't need to sugarcoat, you know, God's word. We need to act now. I think that what we really need to focus on is when you said disciples make disciples, that is the key term, disciples. But we live in a generation, a culture that for so many years has been based on the philosophy of making converts and calling them disciples. Mm -hmm. But converts cannot make disciples. Only disciples can make disciples. And they are the individuals that literally, literally follow everything you've been saying all night. First and foremost, they have a love for the Lord, our God, Jesus Christ. And that love is so evident that they had an encounter with him, that he changed them from the inside out. And once being changed and experiencing that, now you want everybody to be changed because you want them to experience that same thing. That means that you're teachable. The word of God, you love it. And as you said, if you don't ask God and he'll cause you to love it, he's just that faithful. 
And then loving the word, knowing it's the truth and living by that word boldly, like Shay said, not compromising on the word. We have compromised as Christians, and so much so the Christian looks just like the non-Christian, so the holiness is out the window. But what does it mean? It means a disciple is one who has given their life over to Christ. That's that submission and surrender that you were talking about. And the holiness comes from from within outward because he is the one that makes us holy. So when we give ourselves to the Holy Spirit, he causes us to be holy, but he also gives us this. And that is something that every one of us understands that the Great Commission uh, was given to all of us as a command, go ye and make disciples of all nations all nations. And so every day we have a responsibility to be concerned about who can I meet today, talk to, and share this great God because it is about their eternal salvation, but it's their day-to-day -day life. Do you ever wonder how do people make it without Christ Jesus. And, and the day is getting so much worse and harder. I really don't know how they do it. So literally, we are doing them a favor when we share our great God with them and uh, demonstrate the disciple that we are unto the Lord. Discipleship is a state of being. It is a way of life. I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. For him, I live for no other reason. And in understanding that it's his desire, go ye and make disciples of all. A-L-L, -L. it's a three-letter word, but it's filled with so much and it displays the very heart of God. So one by one, we meet people, we have influence, strangers that we can share Christ with, not because we want to make converts, but we want a million saved. What is that? No, we want people to be discipled so that they can disciple others and the relationship and the family and the body of Christ continues to grow. That's what Jesus was asking for. We go and we make converts, and then you go back a year later, and people are in worse shape before you met them than after they met you. That's not discipleship. Discipleship is walking with, abiding in, and joining together in Christ Jesus. Disciples make disciples.